Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Web Rush. This is episode 214, securing your web apps and your source code with Faraz DJ. And my name is John Papa, along with my co-host in this World Cup soccer era, Craig the Shoe Shoemaker. Hey, Shoe, how you doing? I'm doing great. I can't wait to score some of those touchdowns. Oh my gosh, you're killing me. (laughs) (laughs) At the recording at this time, we're still at the tail end of the uh, group stage of World Cup Soccer. And I'm enthralled. I got to tell you, I look forward to this every four years. Uh, And I watch a lot of stuff like the Euros and stuff in between too. But I love the tournaments. These worldwide tournaments are just awesome. Are you watching any of this at all, Craig? Uh, No. Uh, The tournament that I'm most uh, familiar with is the All-Valley Tournament. From Karate Kid, that would be the one that I'm probably most familiar with. <laughs> ah, gotcha. The Cobra Kai versus Daniel LaRusso tournament. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that's the one I follow. You know, we start talking about football and, you know, I, I get lost fast. Ah. Well, I, I won't drag you all down into this malaise, but I am absolutely thinking about 98% of my brain cycles are looking at football these days. So it's just a lot of fun. And hey, can you blame me? USA team made it past the opening group stage. I am just super excited. So congratulations to all of you out there who your teams made it out of the group stage into the knockout round. And hopefully by the time that this airs, your team is still in the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. But Craig, today our team and our discussion here is all about teamwork and securing applications. Do you like security in your applications, Craig? I, You know, I, I like to... But only when I think about it and the amount of times that I think about it is probably less than what Faraz does, is what I'm going to have to say. You know, I'm thinking that through the years, there's a lot of things I just didn't want to think about with security. And one of those, which I learned many years ago, large enterprise corps, is that it's kind of important to know that when you're using open source, that you can trust the code that you're getting. It's consistent, it's reliable, and it's trustworthy. And I'm really glad we, you know, have this topic today because we really haven't gone down this road a whole lot on the show. We've mentioned it once or twice early on, but it's about time we came back to this because it's something I think far too often it's easy to brush aside and say, yeah, I'm just going to go grab that NPM package and I'm going to run with it, you know? As long as a couple million people have downloaded it, I mean, it's got to be safe, right? It's got to be perfect for your app. I mean, nowhere in the history of software has any bad code or malicious code ever gotten into any software program. So why bother? Well, we're here to tell you that this is a great discussion to have today. And our guest is an expert on the topic. Everybody, please meet Frost Abogadije. Frost, how you doing? Doing good, guys. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Hey, and Faraz, I want to make sure everybody knows a little bit more about you. We've gotten to know you in the pre-show here, but let me read your bio to folks. Faraz is the founder and CEO of Socket at Socket.dev, where he's working on a new approach to open source supply chain security. Faraz has been an open source maintainer for the past eight years, running some of the most downloaded JavaScript packages in the JavaScript ecosystem. Faraz is a lecturer at Stanford University, where he teaches CS253 web security. 
Socket, the company where Faraz started, is auditing every package in NPM to detect suspicious changes and block software supply chain attacks. Hundreds of companies are using Socket to protect their software applications and critical services from malware and security threats originating in their open source code. Are you all checking for your open source code to make sure there's no malware or security threats? I don't hear any of our audience talking. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, if I had to guess. Probably not. Hey, for us, I know when we talked early on, there's a lot to get to in this topic, but uh, we should probably start off with like, why? Like, w- what's the whole point of making sure your supply chain, or in this case, which we mean supply chain is you know, the NPM packages you're using, what's the whole point and concern here? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the first thing to understand really is like, what are we talking about when we say software supply chain, right? I mean, really all we're talking about is just the set of all the dependencies and the components that make up our software. And the thing that makes this topic so you know, important right now is because there's just been so many more supply chain attacks happening in the last couple of years. Uh, you might have heard of Log4j, you might have heard of um, SolarWinds, um, there's been a lot of kind of just coverage of this topic in the broader tech press. Um, and even within the JavaScript community, there's been a whole bunch of really high-profile packages getting compromised, getting hijacked, malware getting added, um, even something called protestware, where people, maintainers actually intentionally introduce bad code into their packages. And so this has just been really a topic that's on a lot of people's minds as they're building apps today. So that's, that's kind of why it's important, I would say, is, is there's just a lot more attacks happening now. Yeah, and I want to bring up uh, Log4J because this is a, a really big one that happened, uh, I don't know, it was a year or two ago or whatever, but I'm actually looking at a post from the FTC. So the Federal Trade Commission actually has a blog post out talking about Log4J is a ubiquitous piece of software used to record activities in a wide range of systems found in basically lots of software services. And they're, they're, they're mentioning they're a series vulnerability, vulnerability, I can't speak, in the popular Java logging package was disclosed, posing a severe risk to millions of customers and consumers in enterprise web applications. And it's being exploited by a growing set of attackers. So I'm not going to read the whole article here. I'll post it in there. But just to remind folks, if you didn't hear about Log4J and you're in the web space, this is a reminder for those who did and a refresher for those uh, who are wondering why it's important. Log4j is one of the most widely used packages out there. And it's very likely that you, if you're not writing software using it, you are using software in your daily life that actually uses it somewhere. And it was a massive security vulnerability. And this is exactly why we have to be careful. It's not that Log4j was bad. It's a very widely awesome package, used awesome package, but sometimes things happen and that's why Feroz is here. That's this whole conversation today. Is how, do you, how do you make sure the stuff that you feel like you trust is truly trustworthy? Am I right, Frost? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, everybody wants to build good applications, right? Uh, a lot of developers, you know, want to do the right thing here and build, you know, their, build their apps out of software components that are solid and that aren't going to cause problems for their users. And, you know, one, one aspect of that has to be, you know, the security of that code that you're relying on. Hey, Ward, you know, I was building an application the other day and I pulled in this really cool UI component, but it brought along a lot of dependencies with it. How do you deal with that? I don't like that, John. Um, it reminds me uh, that the AG Grid, which is a, uh, an advanced 
data, editable data table that we use in a lot of our enterprise apps because it, it addresses the complex scenarios we encounter. Um, AG Grid doesn't have any dependencies at all. Zero dependencies. Well, tell me, why, why is that good? Like, what is the value of having zero dependencies? Well, it's, it's wonderful not having to wonder if while I'm pulling that in, I'm also pulling jQuery in or Lodash or who knows what. Uh, in part because that's extra stuff coming over the wire. It's extra files that I don't know what they're all about. Uh, it means when my client security team has to evaluate this, they're evaluating AG Grid and not everything else that might be slipping in under the covers or something that we have to worry about there. Yeah, you know, it's great to see this day and age, you can have a zero dependency library that does something like complex data grid functionality. So all of you out there, do check out AG Grid at their website at ag-grid.com. So, so one of the things I think is interesting is the fact that it, we're all using all these dependencies. We're using stuff from NPM all the time. And we're not going and, and, and inspecting the Git history of everything that happens. And it, it sort of seems to me like off the top of my head, there's a few different ways that this malicious code could get in there. You know, maybe um, you have a, someone's credentials were, were compromised. And so someone goes in and, and puts in a, you know, some code that's not supposed to be doing something or, or maybe uh, you have someone overwhelmed and they, they bring in a, a pull request that they just didn't look at close enough or something like that. So I'm, I'm sure there's a, a bunch of different more uh, items that you could add to this list, but I'm just curious, like, where are the threats that we have to worry about and what makes them hard to spot? That's a good, good question. So really, I think what you're asking is like, you know, why, why are so many of these attacks happening now? And like, why can't people really catch them, I think? And I, and I, I think when you ask that, you know, it, it really comes down to three reasons that I see. Um, so the, the first reason is that there's just been a massive increase in the number of third-party dependencies that we're all using. So if you compare like the way we write software today to the way we wrote, wrote it 10 years ago, there, the number of dependencies is orders of magnitude higher. You know, it used to be that you might pick, you know, five dependencies and build your app with those in, in you know, in, 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 in a, you know, in a prior era. But today, in, in order to just get started with building most web apps, you install React, you install a couple of component libraries, and very quickly, you're already at a thousand dependencies in your node modules folder. In very fact, easily. the... Uh, very, very easily, yeah. yeah. Very easily, <laughs> In fact, the, the hello world for React, uh, if you follow the instructions on the React website and you do create React app, you'll actually end up with almost 1,400 dependencies in your node modules folder uh, when I last tested. <laughs> 1,400 so projects just among friends, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, some of those might be, you know, those might be written by the same person. And so you might not be depending on literally 1,400 different entities there, but, but it's still a large number. And so... You know, that's something that I think has really just changed a lot uh, about the way we write software. Um, the average NPM package has 79 dependencies. So you know, that is not a way that we used to write software before. And I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. I actually think there's a lot of benefits to writing these hyper-focused modules that a lot of times people um, overlook. Uh, you know, there's, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes it does make sense to actually put you know, 20 or 30 lines of code into its own module. Um, that, you know, and I, so I don't want to, I don't want to like blame, you know, the NPM community in any way for that. I'm actually responsible for some of those, uh, those small packages myself, but I will say that one of the main downsides and one of the main reasons why 
folks don't like this approach of, of, of software decomposition is that it does mean that when you install one thing, you often end up depending upon a, a huge number of different people and different uh, organizations. So that creates a much larger attack surface because if any one of the maintainers involved decides to you know, put something bad into their package, then you're now affected. So that's like one really, really big change. Um, and um, the other one, uh, the second one I would say is that change happens a lot faster than it used to in our applications. So it used to be like, again, like a decade ago, uh, a software companies used to release their software once a year. Um, you know, they would, they would do put a lot of testing into that uh, before doing a release. The security team would have a chance to really dig in and test things really thoroughly. Uh, but today in software companies, we do releases oftentimes uh, multiple times per day. Um, even sometimes 100 times per day in, in some companies because they're doing continuous deployment. And so in that world, security can't really be a gatekeeper and you know, sign no. off on, on, on exactly what's going on. So um, we need a different approach that, you know, that, that, that uh, will let us safely bring in new open source. Uh, the other thing is, you know, related to that is that we're using a lot of tooling that tries to help keep us up to date. Uh, I know a lot of folks here probably use Dependabot from GitHub. And uh, you know, that tool... Is always pushing us to update our dependencies, uh, pull in new third, you know, to- almost too much and too aggressively these days, don't you think? Like it feels like it's always warning me, "Hey, your thing's out of date," and, I, and suddenly I got seventy messages from Dependabot. Absolutely, yep. And so I think you know that uh, that it comes from a place of good intentions. In general, you know, a newer version is likely to have hopefully fewer bugs and uh, fewer security issues, uh, but. And, and also, if there is a security issue that comes out and you're already using the latest version, then you'll probably have an easier time, you know, updating to the to, to get the security fix uh, if you don't have to also migrate across like two or three major versions. So that's kind of the argument for Dependabot and for keeping up to date like that. But I will say that, um, you know, as we've shifted to this world of, of updating so more so, so frequently, um, we're, we're actually pulling in new third party code every single time we merge one of those Dependabot pull requests. And almost nobody that I've talked to actually reviews the code that's changed in the, in the dependency. And it's really strange if you think about it, because we do code reviews for our own teammates' code, right? Like, you can't usually, you can't usually merge something unless somebody else on the team has, like, looked at it and, and approved it. Um, but when it comes to code written by somebody who doesn't work at the company, doesn't work on our team, who's just, you know, a person we've never talked to, we're much more comfortable just saying, well, yeah, I'm sure it's fine, you know. Uh, you know, and, and, and just clicking merge on it, which is which is really interesting uh, psychologically. I think people think, well, you know, it's, well, it's in the open source package, so it's not my problem. It's not our problem. But if you think about it, your app is actually made up of almost the majority is open source code. It's like ninety percent in a lot of apps. Ninety percent of the code is open source code, and ten percent is your own code for your app. So, and at the end of the day, it's all going to run inside of one Node.js process, and Node.js doesn't care. You know, or your browser, the browser doesn't care who wrote the code. It's going to, at the end of the day, it's all that code is your app. A keylogger so, is a keylogger. It doesn't matter where it came from. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's, that's like one really big, big thing that's changed is we're updating so fast that oftentimes we might even be updating to something that was published, you know, yesterday or even hours ago. And when you're doing that, you actually can't rely on the usual thing that happens in open source where the community makes things better and finds flaws and fixes them. Because if you're, if you're, Installing something that was published yesterday, no one has really looked at it yet. It's too new, right? No one is. There hasn't really been a chance for the community to vet it, and so it's 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 adding an unnecessary level of risk of of supply chain attack in that case. 
You know, you made a lot of really great points here for us. And I want to come back to a couple of these because let's walk the dog a bit on this. Let's say you've got a project where you've got some NPM packages and, and let's just start with the initial state of, I trust what I've got, right? Uh, the NPM packages I'm using, et cetera. Let's just start there and assume everything's okay for now, which is not a safe assumption, but let's assume it's there. And now you're saying uh, we've got a bunch of dependent bot or other we run NPM audit, for example, and we see there's some security risks, or we see something from the FTC, like about Log4J. We're like, okay, they're telling us to go upgrade to these versions. We now upgrade to those versions of other software packages. If I were to, our audience was to go through and actually code review the packages, we're not just talking about, let's say it's Log4J, looking at Log4J. We're look, talking about looking and code reviewing technically, not just Log4J, which I'm not familiar with how it works under the covers, but also every dependency it has and every dependency that every dependency it has has and every dependency <laughs> that every dependency that every dependency. So you literally could be saying that, and I'm, I'm putting this, painting this picture because it could literally be 50 to 100 packages you're not familiar with. And where do you even begin to code review it? Which is why I think, and we'll get to this in a moment, why what you're working on helps solve that problem and address it for people so they don't have to spend three months reviewing something that's spent three seconds pulling in. But, but I think the other aspect of that is that this is not a stag, uh, static problem, meaning you can't assume what you have is already secure because even if it works today, it might not be secure tomorrow. And, and let me explain a little about this because let me explain. What I mean by this is that you, the, we find security holes every day. So the whole reason Dependapot and NPM Audit and other tools exist is that today the software you're using comes up clean, but if a security hole is discovered tomorrow, it might get reported tomorrow. So you have to, this has to be some way where you can constantly look at your software. That's one thing we have to do. The second piece of this is that when you're fixing one problem, let's say it's package A has a security vulnerability. Oops, my CICD just caught package vulnerability using for us as software. Okay. Now I pull in the fix to that. Package B, which was perfectly fine in its current state, might have just pulled in a new version of itself too, because maybe your NPM strategy in your package, Jason, was using like a minor, you know, uh, or a major. Don't do that, by the way. Uh, using a minor or even a patch versioning. And the new version that came in now introduced a new security one. So think of this like a medical problem. I, I, my father was talking the other day where I had, he's like, I had to stop taking my blood pressure medication because it was causing me issues with my other medication, right? You're fixing one problem and introducing another at the, at the same time. And, and I think it's important to lay out for folks that what's fine today should not give you comfort, which will be fine tomorrow. And I guess I want to hear from you for us. Do you, do you agree with that statement? And so how does what you've put together help address this? Yeah, no, you laid it out really well. I mean, there's, there's basically too much work for a single developer to handle here. I mean, if you think or about a what... team in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Even a whole team. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, if you think about, okay, so what, what happens when a developer installs a new dependency? They, they send a pull request you know, to, to, to add that and maybe it's part of an, a larger pull request. But when you look at the diff, you know, on GitHub or on whatever tool you're using, you'll see that, you know, that, that new dependency shows up as a single line change. You know, it's just like, oh, we're just adding this package at this version. 
it looks so harmless. It looks so simple. Just just one line of code, right? How could how much how bad could one line of code be? Or one, it's not even code. It's actually just a line in a JSON file, right? Yeah. But the thing is that th- there's no indication at how potentially dangerous that that one line could be. Um, you like you said, you'd have to painstakingly review every line of code of that dependency and anything that it depends on, all the way down the dependency chain. And so that's why no one is doing it today. It's just ridiculous to expect really anyone to be able to, to devote that amount of time. And honestly, it defeats a lot of the point of why we want to use open source in the first place, which is that we're trying to not have to solve these problems because somebody else already solved them. So, you know, I want to choose this open source package because I'm not an expert in that topic. And somebody else who is wrote that package, and I'd like to just be able to use it and not have to understand the details of how it's implemented. Um, that's kind of the point, right? So, so um, you know, digging into the code here is actually really, you know, in a way, it's, it's asking a lot uh, of teams. So I think that what we really need here is something that is a middle ground between doing nothing, which is the status quo today, and between asking everybody to start reading all this code. Um, but by the way, the, the, there are some teams that do read every single line of code of their dependencies. For example, I know Google does that. Uh, and they have a whole team that's devoted to doing it. Um, but uh, they're very careful with what they... I mean, they write a lot of stuff themselves, and they barely use any open source, actually, that they haven't written themselves. So that's why they're able to do that. But, um, but but barely anybody does that, because there's a lot of downsides. You have to have a whole team usually doing it. Usually, uh, they're, they're really backlogged, so developers can't use the latest and greatest versions. They're usually running versions of, of libraries that are like you know a year or two old because the security team hasn't had a chance to review the newer versions. So it's really not fun for developers to work in that environment, to be honest with you. So, um, so that's not that's not a fun thing. No one wants to do that. So what we need is something kind of that's like a, a middle ground where we can give developers more visibility into what the risks are, more than just a single line that looks like you know a harmless one line change to the package JSON. We need more visibility than that. But we don't want to go all the way to the extreme of saying, you know, we're going to slow down developers. We're going to make them go through all these processes to pick dependencies. We need something that's kind of like a middle ground. And so, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to do at Socket. Are you building a web application? Need to deliver it soon and don't have the people to do it? Maybe you're not sure your company has the skill set or experience to do it. And maybe we can help. I'm your host, Ward Bell, and my day job is building applications for companies like yours. I don't do it alone. I'm president of IdeaBlade, a consultancy that specializes in enterprise web application development. We're particularly strong in Angular, RxJS, NGRx Redux on the front end, and .NET and Microsoft technologies on the server. We're a small, tight-knit group of people handpicked by me for their expertise, experience, integrity, and team spirit. Maybe we can help you with architectural guidance and hands-on development. And if there's something we don't know, and in our field, really, there's too much to know, We can draw on our personal connections in the Microsoft RD, MVP, and Google GDE networks, as well as our international circle of really great developers, people we know and trust personally. If you've got a project that's keeping you up at night, shoot us an email at info at ideablade.com. That's info at ideablade.com. And now back to the show. I think we sufficiently scared the pants off of most of our audience, right? To tell them, look, there is a problem, and I and I hope we've laid that out pretty well. Um, by the way, I, I'm I'm coming from direct experience in this. One of the biggest projects I ever worked on when I was at Disney, uh, we had to do a massive audit of all these packages, and it it took a long time. We used a lot of software, involved a lot of teams, corporate security got involved, everything, because it was important. 
Um, and we didn't have access to things like you're talking about right now. So ignorance is bliss. And I think that's the point I'm trying to get across to all of our audience here is that before I actually worked on that project about nine, 10 years ago, I never really thought seriously about this until I realized a potential problem. Like nobody wants to have your credit card numbers hacked, for example, on a database, right? So these are important things we have to think about. And the good news is that you have a way for us to not have to think about them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I don't want to pitch socket too hard here. I, I think actually some of the things that we can talk about here are actually more general than what you can do with, uh, with socket. And it's yeah. more of a philosophical thing. And there's other products too, by the way, that do this beyond socket that, that, and we can put some of these in the show notes and links as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I, I have spent a lot of time working on it from the, from the perspective of what we're trying to do with socket. So I'll, pro- I'll, I'll definitely share some examples fr- from that, uh, from that world. Um, but I mean, you know, one, one way to think about this is we want to basically make it easy to do the right thing. So developers shouldn't have to have superhuman efforts in order to do the right thing. So the default should be secure, right? Make it easy to do the right thing is kind of how we think about it. And so right now, it's way too easy to do the wrong thing, which is to just add dependencies freely. No one looks at them. No one's really doing anything here. It's just, it's just, it's just chaos and, and everyone has their head in the sand about how, how dangerous all this is. So what we can do to make this you know, easier is think about what work it takes today to evaluate certain parts of a dependency. So when you're picking a dependency as a developer, right, you're usually looking for a few things. You're like asking, you know, does this thing, is this thing even open source? Can I even use it, right? It's easy to tell that. Usually it says MIT license or something right there on the, on the or we just assume it's open source. Maybe people aren't even checking that. I don't know. But usually, uh, usually it's, it's open source, so that's easy. Usually we, we look at the docs and we try to get a sense for if this thing seems well documented. Usually we look at the downloads and the GitHub stars and we try to get a sense for are other people using this package. Uh, maybe we look at the last time a new version was published or if it has recent commits to get a sense for if this thing is abandoned or if it's maintained. Um, so it's, you know, it's pretty easy to check for these things and we, most of us already do that as we're going about our days you know, trying to find dependencies that we want to use. But if you want to be really a security-minded developer, the types of things you need to look for do involve a lot more investigation. So like we mentioned before, you can't really easily dig into a bunch of dependencies and dependencies of dependencies to look for the kinds of things that might be um, critical to security. So ideally, you know, ideally a developer would be able to quickly answer a few questions about a package. Like for example, is this package going to send data to the network? Is it going to talk to the network? Cause I mean, if you, if you, if you see that in a package and it's, like a calendar widget or something for your website. You know, why does that thing need to talk to any APIs, right? That's like that, you know, why does it need to talk to any domains on the internet? If you see that, that's just like a huge red flag, right? Um, another question would be, you know, is this package going to read any of my environment variables? You know, is it going to read process.env where I keep my, you know, AWS tokens and my API keys for all of my different services, right? If it's going to read that, then I would want to know that, and I would want to know which, which variables is it going to read. Is it reading a specific one for that package, or is it reading all of them? And, and then also, I'd want to know, is it sending those to the network, right? Because that's what a lot of malware does, is it'll read all your environment variables, it'll take all your keys, and it'll just send them off to some random server that the attacker is going to use to, to basically like log in and you know, attack all your services. So that's like a very common type of attack. So being able to quickly answer just, like, just those two things, network and environment variables, is super valuable. 
But there's also other things like, does it have an executable file in there? You know, is it running an EXD or some kind of native code? Does it have a shell script that's going to run when you install the package? Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about this as a post install script, right? Does it have one of those? Does it contain obfuscated code, right? Is it clear that they're, that they're trying to hide something, right? Are they, are they, are they densely, you know, packing their code or using some tool to obfuscate what it's, what it's trying to do, right? Does it collect telemetry or talk to an analytics service to send data about how you're using the package? Cause we're seeing a lot of that these days. So these are all the kinds of questions, you know, uh, oh, another one would be, does it, does it RMRF your hard drive? I mean, does it, does it, does it, does it delete files on your hard drive? Does it write, read or write files on your hard drive? Like that, if so, which, which ones, right? Is it reading the, is it, is it writing a configuration file or is it, is it, uh, you know, is it reading like, you know, your, 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 your Bitcoin private keys out of your, out of your home folder? For us, you're talking a lot about, and and rightfully so, uh, intentionally malicious, uh, security violations, but there, there's also, I know we kind of glossed over, there's also the unintentional security holes too, right? That can also be introduced inside of software that, we should also be on the lookout for? Yeah, you're totally right. So, you know, that's a, that's a great point because Log4J is an interesting example where, you know, that was a, that we talked about that one earlier and that was actually an accident. Um, but if you think about why it was not caught sooner, right? What was it, what was Log4J actually doing that caused the problem here? What, the yeah, feature that they were... Actually, and I should have done this earlier. Can you just explain quick, like, what is, what does Log4J do? Like, what is the point of using it? So it's a logging library. So it's it's similar to um, I mean it's it's a, it's it's a complicated package, but you can think of it kind of like the debug package if anyone has ever used that before in Node yeah. Node.js. So logging so debug. debug messages or just act user activity and pretty standard in millions of applications, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's a very common logging library. But one of the things that they did that was kind of odd was that uh, they allowed uh, you to include certain. Uh, String like certain extra stuff in your in your log strings that would uh, actually cause your app to go out to the network, download a, a jar file or you know some kind of executable code, and then run it. And so that's a really dangerous thing to even have as a capability in a logging library. But not only that, um, the, they actually did it wrong. They implemented it wrong, and it actually allowed anyone who is potentially controlling any part of that log string to to trigger that that code execution. So that would mean like for example you could name your username like if you're if you're, if you're using a website that uses log4j to log things and I and I'm able to control anything that's going to end up in a in a log line on that server. So things like can I control the URL, can I control the username of the account I'm creating, can I control some text on my profile that I'm adding, anything that I can control as a as a user of this service. If I can put that specific string in there that Log4j is looking for, then it would actually cause the, the server to run my code. And so that's, that's kind of the attack. So, you know, there's two questions. There's two kind of things there. One is like, you know, did they implement that feature correctly? Which they, they obviously didn't. But the more interesting question I think is, is if I'm picking a logging library, do I even want to use a logging library that has such a, such a crazy feature in it? I mean, that to me is like a huge red flag. Like this might be too complicated of a logging library and, and have a lot of maybe some bad ideas in there um, that I don't want to use. And so I think just, just being able to see that when you're picking libraries is actually pretty valuable because a lot of times I'm looking at, you know, library A and I'm looking at library B and I see that library A is going to actually use eval and it's going to run some shell commands and it's going to do all this crazy stuff. And I see library B doesn't have any of those problems. And so it actually can be a factor in which library I even want to use. So I think that's, that's part of what Socket can do is it can tell you about that runtime behavior of the library. So it even helps in the, in the, 
you know, just, just in terms of the quality or kind of giving you a sense of how is this thing architected? Like, what is it going to be? What is it going to really be doing here? Um, it could be helpful. This is, this has really been a great discussion. Thank you so much for sharing a, a lot of this with us for us. And I know there's other, you mentioned other packages, other tools of do it. You mentioned Dependabot briefly too. Do you want to kind of just circle back to that one? Cause that's probably one of the more ubiquitous things that people can use and kind of what Dependabot is and how you recommend using it. Yeah. So Dependabot's great. Everyone should use it, I think, or something like it. Um, it, it, it really is good at, uh, finding known vulnerabilities. Um, so those are ones that are basically accidents. So sim- similar to Log4j, like we've discussed, uh, usually they're introduced accidentally by the maintainer and then a security researcher looking around out there finds this problem. Uh, they, they report it, uh, get it fixed, and then that goes into a database of these known vulnerabilities. And so Dependabot can help you find if you're using any open source that has those known vulnerabilities in it. The downside of just focusing on these known vulnerabilities, though, is that you, um, you're you only getting part of the picture. So it, they don't really focus on any of the stuff that I've been talking about around intentionally um, malicious packages. Um, because those are, those are usually like a package has been taken over, some bad code has been added, and nobody knows yet, right? So anyone who's installing it now for the next week is going to get owned, right? Is going to have their keys stolen or something. And then finally, somebody finds this, they discover it, and then it gets taken down. But during that window where the package was malicious, um, you know, Dependabot or any of these tools um, isn't going to know about it because it's not a known vulnerability. It's, it's really an unknown malicious package is how I would describe it. And so that's where I think something like Socket, where we can actually look at what the code is doing, is helpful. So I think Dependabot is a great baseline, and people should use it or something like it. Uh, but I think... Um, you know, we need to go beyond that in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of really securing ourselves against all the potential attacks out there. So when you find this stuff, do you, do you guys disclose as well? Yeah, that's correct. So we, uh, you know, we, when we find stuff, we tell NPM about it. Uh, they take it down. And then um, also in the meantime, before NPM takes it down, we block it for anyone who has installed Socket. So Socket will, will basically scan all these packages on any pull requests that's getting, you know, getting sent to your repository. And if we see malware in it, then we'll just, we'll put a red X on that, on that GitHub check. And then you'll be able to see that it's, it's not, you know, you shouldn't merge it. And we'll leave a comment explaining why, you know, what we found in there and why, why, why we don't recommend uh, merging it. So, so yeah, we, we, we definitely want to take it down and help and protect everybody because it's really important to help people, even the ones that aren't using Socket today. That's awesome. Frost, thank you so much for sharing all this today with us. And we'd like to end our show with a final thought for our audience, which could be on topic or off topic. But uh, I will start today with my co-host here, Craig, the shoe shoemaker. What's your <laughs> final thought for the audience, Craig? Uh, my final thought is I do very little in terms of any sort of real world work that's security related. <laughs> you could have just stopped there. I like the slight pause. I do real of any real world work. Drops the mic. <laughs> was, that, was that our edit point? We're just going to stop it right there. I appreciate that. Um, but one podcast that I've listened to, I've mentioned it before, um, that just you know helps me learn a tiny bit about this world, um, and and it has helped me, I, I think, just have a better mindset when it comes to computing security from a coding perspective as well as just being on the internet or, or on a computer in general is Darknet Diaries. So um, if you have a chance to check it out, it's a very well done podcast and I enjoy it. So I'll just, I just want to say I, I second Darknet Diaries. It's a great, it's a great show. It's amazing. 
uh, one of the best shows. I love their episodes on physical security. Yes. Um, they go beyond digital. So they'll actually talk about, they'll interview people whose job it is to break into banks and government buildings in order to discover weaknesses in the security in the building. So they'll actually interview these people and their their jobs just sound incredibly fun and cool. They get to basically do James Bond things all day. Cut to the chase. Yeah, if you want to get into a building, just hire a young woman to wear a pregnant belly suit and have her arms full and she'll get through any sort of badge swiping necessary. So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, there's so many of those tricks and it's so fascinating. Um, I'll give a shout out for my shout out. I'll, I'll, um, I'll shout out Darknet Diaries as well, but also... Uh, if people are interested in this kind of thing, they, they should consider coming to the DEF CON conference uh, in Las Vegas. It happens every year. It's a really, really fun uh, way to get exposed to a little bit more of the security world. There's a lot of really cool stuff that goes on, and it's really like a, a, a meta conference. There's all these little conferences that happen within it. Like You can go and learn how to do lock picking. Um, you can go and see... I, the, the craziest thing I saw was I saw somebody, they were doing social engineering, and it was mind-blowing they had they had a phone booth on stage and there was a person inside and they're literally calling companies and trying to figure out how to convince them to give up like social security numbers and other personal information and they're doing it in a phone booth so that the audience noise won't affect the phone call but everyone in the audience can hear the conversation happening and so you're just watching this like social engineering expert like perfectly manipulate somebody into giving them you know all this personal information and reading out social security numbers and everything like that and it's really, it's really uh, very eye-opening to see that in person and see, see how, how that thing, kind of thing happens. Uh, it's, it's really it's quite, quite cool stuff. I have a couple of final thoughts here. And first, before I get to those, I want to mention that we're going to put all the links to these uh, podcasts and shows and whatnot, and even the Stanford course that Faras is uh, uh, teaching as well uh, into our show notes here. So you can check those out. These have been great tips today, but I have a little story to share about another kind of a security hole that I experienced once. And I, I think it's kind of interesting, but also kind of eye-opening. So a while back, I was working on a project and we had a vulnerability where it was turning out that every day at a certain time of day, all of our applications were shutting down. And to say that tens of millions of people use this application is not a stretch in any case daily. So it kind of made a big difference if this application would shut down and we literally had to reboot the cloud servers at a specific time of day every day. And it was always on the hour, which was always a little suspicious. We're like, what's going on? Uh, It turns out the security issue we had here was that it turned into a problem with logging. Boy, it's always come back to logging in this episode, isn't it? We had a logging issue where, long story short, the way this application was architected, we had a problem where if we were logging too much information at a certain point, the thing we were logging it to, which is irrelevant at this point, it would basically, um, uh, based on a new vulnerability that was downloaded in a new version, it would basically just crap out. Meaning it would just fail. And when it failed, the logging failed. And when the logging failed, the application was not architected very strongly, meaning the logging took down the application. And since it wasn't monitored well, I mean, you can see the series of problems in this thing, right? Like taking in new vulnerabilities, boom, not a good thing. Logging too much information, not a good thing. Logging to something that could overfill, not a good thing. Having that thing then fail, not good. Having logging then fail, terrible. And maybe the worst was that you never have your logging when it fails, take down the entire app. 
Like who's ever used amazon.com and said, you know what, if they can't log, <laughs> I'm going to refuse to pay money to this website. You know, like you want to buy your stuff, you want to buy your stuff. So basically the whole site would go down and it would take maybe 15 minutes, 15 minutes for tens of millions of users, basically to come back online. The security vulnerability in this was not so much a malicious thing. It was more accidental as Frost was talking about. And it turned out all these series of events caused and contributed to the problem. But the real vulnerability here was while the system was down, the access to the logs was actually exposed. And you don't want your logs exposed in any kind of way. So these kind of things are a bad thing to have happened. Now, luckily, the things that were being exposed in this case, nobody actually took. And there was nothing in them that was actually any valuable or anything personally identifiable in any way, shape or form. But because of these kinds of issues, you have to be careful. You have to make sure that you've got control over your security. You don't want to be the next company in the news that announces, hey, guess what? You've been hacked. So my final tip here is Troy Hunt. If you have not followed Troy Hunt out there, go check out his websites. Uh, what's it called, Craig? I've been pwned. P owned. P. How do you pronounce yeah, it? He sold it. Is is that still? Is he still affiliated with it? But yes, that's the website. Sorry. Yes, I'm not sure how you pronounce this thing, but uh, and I can put the link into it in here. Yeah. Um, it's basically for data breaches, and pretty much every data breach in the world gets gets into here. And if you're not familiar with Troy, you should be. Uh, he's presented in front of the U.S. Congress. He is widely known as one of the foremost world security experts. He's written courses on this. He's done demonstrations like Faraz was talking about, where he, in, on stage he will show how to hack people's Wi-Fi in the same room that you're in. So check this stuff out. If you're a little scared and frightened, good, because you should be. <laughs> and that's my final thought. Can I, can I add on one final, final thought? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> uh, that story just reminded me of, of this, uh, this fun uh, little hack thing I did in college where um, your logging story where you're talking about how the logs were visible briefly during that, during that, uh, that bit, of, uh, bit of downtime. So I don't know if you all remember, you guys have probably been doing this stuff for a while. Have you, you, have you all ever installed WordPress? Um, by hand before, where you put the, yes. the folder of PHP files on a server, you FTP it up. That. Yeah. Okay. Well, for, for those who, who are too young for, to remember that or just never had it, never had a chance to do that, you basically install WordPress or a lot of these PHP framework things by by uh, unzipping you know a bunch of PHP files and then FTPing them up to a server, and then the way that you configure it is you open up this file called config.php. And it has a bunch of variables in there for placeholders for you to put in your database, uh, you know, username and password and, and stuff like that. And it all goes into this config.php file. But uh, you can, you know, you can directly try to visit that file. You know, you can try to load like, you know, you know, uh, someone's WordPress blog and then go to slash config.php. Uh, and that won't actually show you the file information because it's, it's just putting them in variables, right? It's like a variable, you know, and then it doesn't actually render it out to the page. But what can happen is when you're editing that file, if you're using Vim or you're using Emacs or using one of these, these editors, they create temporary files. And so almost everyone who, who, who sets up WordPress, they SSH into their server and they edit this file. And if they're doing that and they lose the connection and the, the SSH connection gets killed, then the temporary files might still be there. Uh, and the temporary files are called all kinds of different things depending on the text editor that you're using. But um, 
oftentimes they'll add like a tilde or a or a you know a, some other extension on the end there. And what that'll do is it'll you'll basically have a file called config.php tilde. And because it doesn't end in .php, that means that the PHP interpreter doesn't actually process that file. And what you see is the actual raw source code of the PHP file, which includes your database password. And so it's crazy. So I wrote a, I wrote a little script to just go through the Alexa top 1 million websites in college and to just try to load like, you know, every variation of the diff- what the different text editors do. So I tried loading like, you know, config.php tilde, config.php.1, you know, config.php.2, whatever the all the different extensions. And it found, believe it or not, um, I, I, sh- I can send a link, I can add a link to the show notes for this, but uh, it, it found uh, literally so many, right? So many different um, passwords. Uh, it was something like 1% of all the WordPress sites that I, that I uh, looked at had their passwords just there in the open. Wow. I collected so many passwords and then I emailed them all and told them all about it, as many as I could. Um, but it was including things like, you know, uh, Perez Hilton's, you know, celebrity gossip site, um, the liber- like Science Center, um, uh, you know, famous bloggers, um, uh, uh, Robert Scoble, another blogger guy, um, Angry Birds, their website. Like, I just got all these passwords of all these companies and these people. And, uh, and I had to do, it was actually annoying because then, then I had to do the responsible thing and email them all and try to find all <laughs> right. their contact info. And it was super annoying. Um, but yeah, anyway, it was really, it was really crazy. So security is just one of these wild spaces where, you know, these, these little tiny things end up being so important and, uh, you gotta be really, you gotta think like an attacker in order to to defend, to defend yourself. So anyway, it's been great guys. Yeah, it's great having you here. And I want to thank you very much. And for all of you out there listening to us, thank you so much. And for keeping us on the air for our sponsors from idea blade from narwhal and from ag grid. Thank you so much, and I hope you all have a great holiday season, and we'll see you next Thursday.